So the teaching today has from it a verse that you'll see that I think is pertinent to where we are, and that is by title, Settling for Bronze. Settling for Bronze. So if your mind kind of goes back to the Olympics, you'll realize that even though it is a place of honor to stand in the third position, anybody who gets a bronze would say, oh, I miss the silver by that much. Oh, I miss the gold by that much. Everybody wants the gold. That is the place in which the wreath was put on the heads of the champions and it still today is very much what athletes work very hard to achieve and not many are able to achieve that. But just put that in your mind and consider with that what these men would ultimately be left with. I guarantee you it wasn't even a bronze. They didn't even make it to the stand. I want to give you a quote that I discovered in the study. You might be familiar with it in the political sciences, but listen to this. It's Thomas Jefferson who is being quoted, penned in 1781, great writer of great documents. And this is his quote. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Isn't that amazing that he would say that back at a time in which there was both a revolution and a revelation of what he saw in America and for the people, presidents would take their opportunity elected by the people to inevitably carry that idea of a protected work and ultimately what Thomas Jefferson and George Washington recognized among many of the early presidents concerning the providential hand of God and the dedication that's necessary for a nation to be preserved by God. They truly were, in what we would say, religiosity believers. And so their motivation and many of the things that they were doing was always, God is best for our nation and our nation will be best served if we serve him as a nation. In verse 21, which is where we'll begin, and then we'll flip back to an older word from the Lord that you'll see correlates to where Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Israel as a central nation, is now as divided. And then we'll take a look at a principle that is spoken of in a New Testament passage, and that will be our sin shop. But as we closed last week, Jeroboam reigned and was 22 years in that. So he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab, his son, reigned 
in his place. And I will tell you, as you probably can presume, he was no better, no better at all. Rehoboam now is being brought to our attention because remember, these two guys were running parallel with one another. What you do need to know is the scriptures closed on Jeroboam's life, but he actually outlived Rehoboam about two years. So the scriptures simply closed. That's his epitaph. Rather than correlating the exact time with regard to when Rehoboam passed away, his story closes there with yet a lineage that will be experiencing grave consequences. His family line will literally all go to the grave. That was prophesied by Ahijah back earlier. And one of the things that we left off with in the previous week is that his son would be one of those claimed by that prophecy. The word remember that was emphasized was a child. This would be something that Rehoboam would have both been dreading. And so let's take a look at this. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. It says that Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city, which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nema and Amoritis, or excuse me, Ammonitus. So she's one of the foreign bride, and she is his mother. And this may indeed tell us that perhaps all of the things that he could have discovered, both by his father's wisdom at some point in time, before he even moved into what we would say both apostasy, which was turning his back on God and giving an unfortunate paradigm of how to live for God, Rehoboam wasn't influenced much by his mother. And the point that I want to make is thank you mothers for influencing your children and nurturing your children. It is so important to realize that as the man by the sweat of his brow is to work that field the woman in the home is a bastion of both protection and spiritual nurturing. It's why there is such fruitfulness in homes in which that mother taking seriously that charge and with her husband is able to raise up the next generation. And so in verse 22, it says, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. So Solomon had done a lot to turn the nation from God. This is indicative of a multiplication of sin and that it really does multiply itself. When a nation begins to sin, if it is not eradicated, dealt with, then the sin follows hard and the consequences become devastating. 
We have pictures of that even in our nation. I know with certainty that the generation that my father was a part of, the World War II generation, would not have imagined such division in our country to this day. But I do remember when my father, as a teacher, was presiding over a classroom, he wrestled with a generation that was quite rebellious. You know, one of the things that they were noted for, the World War II generation, was patriotism and faith in God. And one of the things that began to happen in that latter generation of the 60s that then became the generation of the 70s is no longer a desire for God. And philosophies that were being adopted by culture that was moving away. And in patriotism, the flag was beginning to be burned. And students were actually sewing the American flag on the backside of their britches. That to a military man would be highly disrespectful. I never saw my dad lose his cool ever in class. It was never a part of his disposition. But I know he challenged it at the door and finally had to relinquish because of administration saying they have the right to free speech. And so if they want to wear a flag on their britches, they can do it. If they want to put it on their t-shirt and cross it out, they can do it. It's what they get to do. It's their right to free speech. And so though we appreciate free speech, we never would have presumed that it would be against the country that gives it to us. But even more importantly, the God who has authored there to be even a better speech, which is talking things over with him, prayer. That's one of the things that we need to realize is that when a nation forgets to pray for itself and to give God worship on his day, then what is the culture to do except to have its way with God's people, with the sacred documents of our nation, to change things a bit that become changeable even more to where everyone's confused about what it is we get to do. But worse is forgetting the God that's given us liberty to do so much as a blessing. Judah is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. He sees it. And one of the things that we know about God is that he makes allowance to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be disrespected. He makes allowance for it. When was the last time you were disrespected and mocked? How does that go for you? Does that feel good inside? It doesn't. It's really hard. There is a decline in teachers these days because the disrespect in the classroom 
it's so formidable. It's like, why bother? Why bother? And as a former teacher, but also a present teacher over spiritual matters, it affects me. Because I went through only one season of that. And it was hard to win over a class, not by compromise, but by consistency, expectation, hard season. And so I would find myself enjoying being able to listen to Natalie, who went in as just a young beginning college freshman who was given the privilege of presiding the responsibility over high schoolers. Now that says a lot about her, but it also says a lot about where our school system is right now, where teachers are bailing because to them it's not worth it. And when all of a sudden the school system becomes worthless, which I would agree with what we've done to it, and first dismissing prayer and anything that relates to God and showing resistance to the things that are both moral and ethical, it makes it a combat zone. Very hard. But God sees these things. He saw it back then. He sees it presently. We're all just dressed a little bit differently. And we probably have more luxury to even be able to forget that it's all that much of an urgency to change. But this provoked God. And I find that interesting with regard to Thomas Jefferson's quote. I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. We know that that probably is not an accurate scriptural quote because God never sleeps nor slumbers. But it means what we would interpret is that there is a time in which grace is going to come to a punctuation and judgment, which is pending, comes into effect. And little by little, as God withdraws and more allowances are made, it is what God would say is a judgment. We always think, well, the judgment of God is, of course, lightning bolts and storms and all of the all of the natural disasters, we're going to put that on God. But actually, one of the things that were shown in the scriptures is that he just withdraws himself by a step or two. A distance in which the grace of God, which is there, has to be called upon. But the consequences of his stepping back has ramifications to a community, to a household. God sees it, he makes allowance for it, but he by no means is one who simply turns his back on it. And so this is the provocation of God, both by Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They built for themselves, in verse 23, high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. They're making worship according to what they wanted. Rehoboam was making it convenient to worship. The thing is, is, they weren't worshiping God. 
There's nothing wrong. Jesus spent time, much time, in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. But he wasn't worshiping an olive tree. He went there for solitude. As many of you have taken advantage of times overlooking the ocean from a bluff or walking the beach, moving into parks, by rivers, these are all fine. But this is what is substitutionary spirituality. And they're not getting anyone better than God. They're fashioning things by the hands of men. And it's leading them to demoralization. Morality means that you are seated solidly with God in the heavenly places. Morality means that it is righteousness prevailing in your decision-making. It means that you are able to say, this is that which pleases God. This is right before the eyes of God, who observes everything. And so they're building for themselves a religious system, and it is not to worship God. Every high place, under every green tree, and verse 24 says, and they were also perverted, there were also perverted persons in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. God literally cleaned up the land, used them to do it. Some factions remained, but it's saying that the perversity of other cultures was not acceptable to God. And Israel had a charge to rid themselves of it, that they not, might not be influenced by it. But it says here that perversion became customary. It became, in essence, the corruptible from the moral, where anything went. Sounds like today's times, doesn't it? Perversion in the land, anything goes. Let people attend to their own truth, defining what it is they feel works according to their conscience, which could be argued, do they have one? You see, if God's established eternity in the hearts of men, it means that in his mind, the mind of man, they're aware that there is a God. Romans 1.19 is very clear that Paul writes, that all creation makes its boast concerning the living God, his invisible attributes, his power, his excellency. All of these things are revealed. Even for those who are sitting under trees and developing a religious system on the high places, they were being confronted by the stars themselves. Who I believe we emphasized on the previous beach teaching is that the stars God named. And we use that because the psalmist in 147, where we closed off on the beach teaching, had come out of captivity. It was one of the first times in which, by revelation, a psalmist was able to say, oh, I am so glad that that is through. The psalmist, not necessarily identified, would not have come back in to what once had been known of the glory of the nation, but to be liberated 
from such a perverted culture, talking about the times of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were raised up as prophets in those days, those men to come back and to pen a song that boasted in the liberty that God had given to them to escape such a tragic place. But the place was an allowance by God for them to be taken away for what their hearts would not receive needed to be done, repentance. But what I was saying is that the psalmist, as he pens these words that don't show embitterment towards God, aren't hurling accusations against him, they're boasting in God, a great God, worthy of praise. And then there's this little division on verse, and it's like God heard that. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to go name some stars now. That's what I'm going to do. What you've done in that psalm, how you're rallying the people to praise me, is worthy of me going and naming some stars. And I thought it was a cute verse that he included in terms of what it motivated God to do. What would God do today if the church rallied themselves and rallied the nation to make a turn, a U-turn, back to him? Do you think there's more stars for God to name? Well, we think he's got it covered, but what we know is that the expanse of eternity covers things that we cannot comprehend. And if it would give him joy to name a star, can you imagine what that would do? If for Israel, they turned now. If for the United States of America, we turned now. Any nation under God's creation would turn now to him. How that would affect the Lord towards those who at one time were defects and continuing moving towards him instead of defecting from him. Interesting thought. So the perverted persons are there. They're allowed. We have perversion in our days now. It's being endorsed. It's being supported. It is being by scriptures condemned. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. This is an attack on a holy city. By the way, the church is being attacked by cities, by governances. This is an authentic attack on Jerusalem. And it says in verse 26, he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. So it's being ransacked. Doesn't indicate right now the treachery of murder, the loss of life in warfare. They just came after the value of what Solomon had placed in. Notice this, the house of the Lord. It wasn't even sacred to that culture. Do you realize the house of the Lord is not sacred, by and large, to this culture this day? It can be. 
Moms, keep at it. Dads, keep up with it. It can be. Schools, too, can be an institution that God would be totally willing to walk back into if laws were not made that says that's a violation to bring God into the classroom. There was a time, and I did as a teacher, I had my Bible in the corner of my desk. As the Lord began to touch my heart, I began to say, this is a worthy book to be in my classroom. And in the latter years, closing my teaching tenure out, it was no hard thing at all to carry this with my satchel and my baskets of graded papers and assignments for the next day. It was the easiest thing that I had to carry. And it became ultimately the driving force of what I would do. But this, who is in opposition, and it tells us he's from Egypt, guess what? Egypt is still after God's people. That speaks of the world system. The world system is still after God to ransack and remove all of the holy things that it might not have any influence whatsoever, any value that any would appreciate. And guess what? It'd be you and I. If Egypt, the culture, can have its way and the government endorses it, it's to ransack and it's to make invaluable what God says is priceless. The contribution of the Holy Spirit in your life, the work that he's done to cover you in gold. In the scripture, when Moses was told to create the Ark of the Covenant, it was made in origin out of a very notable wood. It was a common wood. It was a hard wood. It's been identified as gopher wood, but it was a, it was a very common wood at that time that had in its propensity longevity. But God needed it coated with gold because wood in the scriptures also speaks of humanity. And man cannot approach God without a covering. God allowed for his ark that was made with wood to be covered with gold as a picture of what God would do in covering his creation, covering you and I and our humanity. That's what God wanted to do. Cover us because of our humanity in gold, representing his divinity, his purity. The value of God and making us invaluable to him. The gold shield, so what does that mean? title, this is where it comes from, settling for bronze. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guard room. So it was a procession. These gold shields were very likely symbolic. It's hard to imagine that the Israelites would be taking these into battle, so they were symbolic. What were they symbolic for? Well, I can think of a passage of Scripture that says, take up the shield of faith. 
That's gold. It's not leather. It's gold. And so it's a picture of one, Rehoboam, who had lost his faith and settled for bronze. I'll just make up for it with this. That's what I'll do. I'll make up with it for posterity. I'll show my religiosity. It's close in color. Who's going to know? Well, there actually is a great difference in what gold looks like and what it will not succumb to and what bronze is like and what it will succumb to, which is a tarnishing and a scratching. But this tells us the heart of Rehoboam in this season in which he's both in decline and in spiritual demise, and he can't think of anything other to do than to try and come up with a facsimile, a facsimile <laughs> to what? Perpetuate spirituality. I, I got it covered. We got this thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out fine. Procession, let's go, boys. See, it was to hang in the house of God, and he's using it to wardrobe his warriors, but it ain't gold. And probably at this time, the people didn't care. It didn't matter to them at all that the house of God had been ransacked and the value of the gold was taken. Verse 29 closes on his life. And now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they will be. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all of their days. Their days are numbered. He's leaving the script now. Jeroboam will in two years following this. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Namah, an Ammonitus, an Ammonitus. And then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place and we'll discover that he was not only as wicked, but notably more evil than his father. And he will not be able to retain any semblance of spirituality that's authentic to the worship of God any more than his father had laid the groundwork for. It's all moving in decline. Somewhere between 412 years, 365, depending on whether you clock in at the end of David's reign or at the beginning of it, or come in on Rehoboam's reign. Those are the years that will remain before Israel is taken into captivity, beginning with the 10 northern tribes, and then not too long thereafter, the remnant, Jerusalem being taken. Where do I want to go with this right now? Let me take you back to Deuteronomy. And I'm going to take you into chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. I'm going to hit simply some points and to see if perhaps you're able to say, wow, that sounds like a lot of substance to our times presently. 28 is the passage in which God, through Moses, pronounces his blessings on God's people. 
But it changes course at verse 15 when the cursings are being pronounced if Israel forsakes God. I'm not reading all of them, some bullet points. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you cursings, confusion and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. This is an address to a national people. So I'm not making this personal. I'm making it national. And I'm not speaking of the church. I'm speaking governmentally because this is what Israel was to be mindful of as the consequences of being removed from the proximity of nearness to God by obedience to the law of God and following him. Verse 24, the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Global warming, really? Maybe, but maybe it's divine warning. Maybe, but it certainly could be divine warning and not global warming. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fall with longing for them all day long, and there shall be no strength in your hand. The destruction of the family, and in particular of the kids that will be taken captive by culture, vain philosophies, ideologies, stupid behavior that's being exalted, drugs, all the stuff that we would say, I don't want that ever to be something my kids are under influence, under influence. If my dad was actually teaching a specialized course, and I remember it very well, in 1976, before that, from 1968 to the time that he retired, it was a drugs and alcohol class. He was given that as a curriculum study in sociology. He did an excellent job. But I remember part of it were the paraphernalias that he would bring in, amphetamines and barbiturates, what marijuana looked like, how it could be introduced, cocaine. It didn't come into the classroom. These were facsimiles. All of the names that drugs became noted for, he would teach students about. Many of them, obviously, probably taking them. But his goal was to save them from the influence of culture. And I saw my generation, friends of mine, they'd peel out at noon not to have lunch that mom packed. It was to go into a packed house and get doped. And I would see them across the table from me in certain classes. And I'd be going, what's that smell? Now it's as common as flowers almost. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. You might have heard this, that 
our land is being bought up by foreign entities without exemption. You're kind of going, how could that be? How could it be? Because when a nation turns from God, they do not seek the will of God, nor do they protect the interest of God's people. We need to pray. 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything when a nation fails to give thanks to the Lord with a grateful heart. Gratitude is the attitude that we need to have for God. Then the consequence is inevitable because when you're not rejoicing in the Lord in all seasons that God has given to us, then it can be in a very known phrase, simply, whatever, what's it matter, who cares, leave it alone. In verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show, nor show favor to the young. We know that ultimately this would take place at the time in which the kings have all been in lineage going the way of the earth. And Israel not repenting and only having five kings that deserve the title of good, 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 good. And three, good, bad, bad, good. Meaning some started out good, turned bad, some sorted out bad, became good. That's not a strong legacy. Failures on the northern kingdom, completely, not one-sided as good. Judah, only five being mentioned. Three is honorable mention. They got it wrong to begin with, but they got it right in the closing. They got it right to begin with, they got it wrong in the closing. Closing with our New Testament principle, Join me in turning to 2 Timothy. This will close us out on its application. Settling for the bronze. Don't do it. Here's what the word of the Lord is. Remind them of these things. What verse? It's going to be 14 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy. Verse 14, chapter 2, 2 Timothy. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. You got to speak truth, but you have to have discernment in how you speak truth. And you must speak truth when it is required for the hearer to know of God's heart. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Have you heard vain babblings that are increasing to more ungodliness? Do you remember the one word is that there would be cursings? Have you ever heard of the Lord's name taken so frivolously in vain? And words that at one time Granny would wash your mouth out with soap if she even sensed a consonant coming off of your lips. 
and it's being used as common language. While language that should be sacred and common to the people is becoming dismissed. Gender identity, dismiss it. It's how you feel. It's what you want to be. It's what you want to do. And so we're to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, shunning the profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, verse 17, and their message will spread like cancer, hopping over those names, verse 18, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some, meaning influential men, that's who Paul is citing right now, influential men who all of a sudden decided to get choked up on a theological point that Paul would have made abundantly clear, and thereby their influence took others away from the true faith. That should not happen. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 20, but in a great house there are not only vessels of, notice this word, gold, and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. What we want to say when we leave here, and this probably is cleverly phrased, how you doing today? I am golden. I am golden. How so? Because you sat, because you received the word, because the Lord is in your heart, because iniquity is what you desire not to engage in, but that if that does befall you, you're able to say, I engage in prayer, I plead the blood. God is faithful in his mercy, in his grace. I forgive. I've been forgiven. And therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be, notice this, this is it a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Settle for bronze? Nah. When you leave here, say, I'm golden. I'm good. I'm on the winner's stand. The Lord will reward me with the wreath. I will wear for him that which perhaps is common to man here, but to him is the winner's crown. See, some people are saying, I want something more glorious than what God can offer me. But what happens when the crown that the Lord offers us is refused and a nation will not turn and the church will not declare truth, we all get the same consequence as what the nation of Israel would receive, and both those deserving of it, but those innocent to it, they all got the same consequence. Ask Daniel how he felt. When as a young teenager, he was looking up, but that he would also find himself looking down, dragging the weight probably of shackles on his feet, traveling some 900 miles to Babylon with his brothers and families never living his life again in Israel because a nation went 
year by year, king by king, in a direction that would not be able to be redeemed, except for God to appoint a rescue after 70 years.